0: We're reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read it verse 3. Let's hear the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it's not Advent this morning. Somebody already commented I wasn't wearing my red tie. That was the signal that it wasn't Advent yet. Uh, the, the lights are on, nobody's home. Uh, Advent begins next Sunday. But we were so enthusiastic, we few who uh, decorate the church, we wanted to get it underway so that this morning we would have the decorations and the anticipation would begin to increase. So I'm going to start with an Advent reference uh, from Luke chapter 2 verse 1. And you're familiar with these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. It is with those words Luke introduces his account of the birth of Jesus. It is in those words that he explains to us how it came to be that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. People were required to return to places where they held property. Presumably Joseph held property there and had taxes to pay, and they were to enroll there. As you read those words, you will see that that it was a, a massive and a unique event, all the world, that all the world should be taxed. The ecumene in its entirety was to be taxed. For the first time, Here is a government and an empire that spans the globe, or the known globe. Here, for the first time, there is peace, allowing free movement of peoples and populations. Unknown in the ancient world. But as impressive, and as Augustus' decree were, there is another decree A decree that concerns every period in history, every place in the universe, every person and creature that will ever live. There's a pointer to it in verse 4 where it talks about our election. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We have an insight, a clearer insight in verse 11, where it talks about the purpose of him who does all things according to the counsel of his own will. That's the decree I'm talking about this morning. Not the decree of Caesar Augustus, but the decree of him who has a purpose, who has his own counsel, makes his own decisions according to his own will, even Almighty God himself. The decree in which everything that exists hangs. And I want to refer us to three aspects of this decree, which I'm calling, first of all, something that's an extrinsic to it, something intrinsic to it, and something salvific about it. I chose those words because they all end in the same letter, and I thought you might remember them better. So first of all then, let's think of what is extrinsic to this decree. Well, you can see it there in verse 11. He does all things. That is, in all of his actions and his Operations. Whose actions and operations? Notice that the agent here is God Himself, and in this great chunk of Paul's introduction here, this everlasting sentence, uh, that God who is in Himself reveals Himself as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, in the simplicity of His being, Of his essence, of who God is. He is the simple God. And uh, I want you to know that, and I want you to know that I believe that, because you could very, very well find out if you read a certain book written by a certain pastor uh, called The Jesus Gospel that there is a major theological error. I tell people this now. There is a major theological error, and it turns up on two pages near the beginning of the book one is a throwaway line that God is not simple. The other is a throwaway line that says that God is complex. Neither of those is true. That little book by Liam Gallagher is heresy at that point. The rest of the book, however, is perfectly good on the atonement, (laughs) I hasten to add. So here's my correction to that book, which is forever shouting and screaming to me, you heretic! Sinclair Ferguson, who, by the way, gives me a great uh, statement in, in the book. It's recorded in there. He t- gives me all the, all the nice things that he has to say about it. Takes me aside at the Keswick Convention and says, Liam, we wouldn't say God was not simple, would we? And I said, oh, of course not, Sinclair. Of course not. Uh, and uh, so today I, I'm, I'm making it clarifying for Sinclair, if he's listening, and anyone else who's read the book that we believe in the simplicity of God. Now, what do we mean by the simplicity of God? It's in our Westminster Confession of Faith. It is that God has no body. I mean, we're complex beings. All of our feelings are physiological or they're physical or whatever it may be. But God has no body like we have. He has no parts we're made up of parts. This world is made up of parts. God has no parts. When we, think of, when we think of the attributes of God, a big long list of things that God can do and God has done, we don't look at those lists and think, well, God's made up of this, 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 and this right down through the whole list. No. Every one of those attributes is just telling you who God is. They all belong to the essence of who God is. God is one, not parts nor does He have passions like we do. If you're angry, or you're sad, or, or, or you're trying to overcome your, your own nature, what's going on is there are physical things going on, there are physiological things going on inside you to give you those feelings and so on. But God is not like that. He is simple And this is technical theological language, but you need to learn it even if you don't know what I'm talking about. He is also, it's a theological language, actus purus. He is pure act, pure act. In fact, we could say that God is an active God. He He is everlastingly an active God. There is absolutely nothing passive in God. Things don't act upon Him, He acts all the time. If you think of God's eternity before there was a creation, what's going on in eternity? We learned about this two weeks ago. If I was to ask you, you could answer. Will I, will I test that? No, I won't. What was God doing? The Father was loving the Son, the Son was loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit was the love between the Father and the Son from all eternity. From all eternity, the Father is generating the Son. The Son's being generated. The Holy Spirit is spirated from the Father and from the Son. In other words, there's activity in the being of God all the time. So when God decides to make the universe, we find Him active in the making of of the universe, this massive universe, is a dim reflection of the eternal action within God himself. Whenever God acts "ad extra" is the technical term outside of himself he acts as one God, the one God He is, and his actions are all indivisible, even though the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit involved in them. because there's only one God, there's only one indivisible. Action of God appropriated to the Father, sometimes to the Son, and sometimes to the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that phrase again all things. That little phrase in verse 11 all things comprehends creation and redemption and providence. God does all things in all things. That's why the Apostle Paul can give you that great statement that originated in Aristotle and is edited by the Apostle Paul when he says at the end of Romans chapter 11, From him, through him, and to him are all things. This is how Jesus can say in John chapter 5, My Father is working and I am working. Still working. He's still working in these areas of creation, providence, and redemption, even though He's taken on human flesh uh, at, for a period of time to do, to live below, and then to take that human flesh and glorify it and take it into heaven. When we are talking about God as pure act. We're saying God is the first cause of all things without which there would be no universe, no action anywhere. Without this first cause, there would be no secondary or subsequent causes. A passive, inert God would be an imperfect God. It is far more perfect to act than to be impassive. And God is all act eternally. And creation, a universe, is the first thing that he makes extrinsic to himself. It's not made… When Paul was editing Aristotle, he left out something Aristotle said when he was kind of guessing what an eternal, invisible God would be like Aristotle said, everything that we see must be made out of the stuff that God is. Our God is not made of stuff. Therefore, what God made is not made out of stuff God makes. It's made by the will of God, out of nothing. Out of nothing. That's very important for you to keep in your head. Creation was his first extrinsic work. But there's an intrinsic work of God. That means something internal, internal we might say to God. And that's where this decree comes in. From all eternity, his active mind has been constantly at work. The thoughts of his heart have constantly been employed in devising, forming, set, settling what should be done in time. We cannot separate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this, that there is just one mind at work, one will at work, one God at work in forming this decree. Prior to creation, there is only eternity, and the action of God in say, that is, in Himself. But it is the testimony of Holy Scripture that in eternity, God decreed whatever comes to pass. You know, that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite expressions in the entire Westminster Confession of Faith. And I remember when I first read it, I had gone out for a month or two, maybe no more than a month or two, with a, with a girl in Glasgow who uh, I discovered after we were going out together, we only went, by the way, to operation, uh, overseas missionary fellowship, OMF prayer meetings. That's all we ever went to together. So uh, I'm not a good... <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the, sh, sh, her choice, her choice. Because I think she was as anxious as I was to make sure that we, were, that we were on the same page. Now, I had always had a burden for Southeast Asia, influenced by some great teachers from China and other places, Dr. Sung uh, and uh, uh, Washman Nee, And so I was interested to go and to pray for the work in Southeast Asia. She had a particular calling to one of those countries there. And after about six weeks or so, I realized that I really enjoyed and had a burden for Southeast Asia, but I did not feel that God was calling me particularly to go there. But it was obvious to me that He was calling her to go there, and subsequently she did. She married and went to Southeast Asia. But the last thing that she did on the last walk to the bus was to give me a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You didn't need to do that whole story, but I'm getting to the point any minute now. And I took it home that night, and I read it And that night, it really burned into my mind and my heart. I mean, I was so thrilled I got up and I danced around the room. I was just so excited at this thing. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing is left out of that whatsoever. Not one thing, not one fragment of the universe and what happens in the universe is left out of that whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing in your life and mine or in the world, world's history, isn't included in that whatsoever. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I'm a a, a little bit excited about that. Yes, I am. And here in Ephesians, we find traces of that decree where God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. You see it there in verse 4 chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. When does it begin? In eternity, before there's even a universe. Look at verse 5. We were predestined to be adopted as children according to the good pleasure of His will. Look at verse 9. He makes known to us this mystery that we would never find out for ourselves had He not decoded it and then proclaimed it to us The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Before there was anywhere else, he purposed it in himself. We looked at verse 11, where we're told that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. In his sovereign freedom as God, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Or as Paul puts it here in chapter 3, verse 11, according to his eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ. Now, this is the Bible's universal declaration. You can read about it in Psalm 2 where, where the Lord Jesus, speaking as the Son of God who will be the Messiah speaks about God having decreed the decree that involved him becoming the Messiah and people being drawn to him. In Isaiah 14, this is the counsel that has been counseled by me. The Lord God of hosts has decreed it. Isaiah 46, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my good pleasure. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. And when the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 is talking to the people there in the city of Jerusalem about the events that have just taken place, including the crucifixion of Christ, how does he speak of them? He says that Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan of and foreknowledge of God. So those words, counsel, purpose, and decree, are referring to the same thing. And when we talk about, the use that language and we talk about this decree, we, we mustn't be drawn into the way of thinking from a human point of view about these things. When you and I make decisions, when our session makes decisions, they have meetings that go on until midnight. It feels like uh, talking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Everybody has got something to say. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's always good. And, and, and contributes to us getting to a decision. That's the way it should be. That's the way it is. Even in our own heads. When we're thinking about going on vacation. Well, when will we go? Where will we go? And what how will we go? And what what plane will we get and what car hire company will we get a car from? And and will we take anyone with us? Will we meet somebody there? What, all of these things have got to be juggled in your brain before you make a final decision. But with God God's decisions, God's will, God's counsel and his action is just one thing in a nanosecond. It's actually out, it's so it's so quick. It's outside of time itself. Cannot be measured. Instant. That's the way God works. And there are things to remember. And uh, Velama, a, a reformed theologian. Uh, lays down four principles that we should recognize about the decree of God here. He reminds us that that it's eternal. Ephesians 3.11 there. God's eternal purpose. Verse 4 in chapter 1 about us being chosen before the foundation of the world, Because God is timelessly eternal, He doesn't distinguish between before and after and now. It's all simultaneous to Him. So the decree is eternal. God's decree, secondly, is sovereign because God himself is most free. Nothing binds him, nothing limits him, nothing reigns him in. He is God. His will and decree are not influenced by or determined by anything outside of himself. His sovereignty is not arbitrary. He has reasons for willing what he wills and to will as He wills. You can depend on that. Thirdly, God's will, God's decree is wise. He's called the only wise God in Romans 16. In Romans 11, the apostle can talk of the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out. And fourthly, according to to Velema, fourthly, God's decree is unchangeable and efficacious. Hebrews six verse seventeen talks about the immutability of his counsel. You can't change God. God never regrets the decisions he makes, nor does he change with, with passage of time and the events of history. He is immutable. Mutability is to change. Immutable means God is both unchanged and unchanging and unchangeable. That's so very important. Well, you say, isn't it true that God sometimes changes? Did God not change when He said He was going to judge Nineveh and Jonah went to Nineveh? And when the Ninevites repented, God didn't judge them? Isn't that God changing? People raise that question. It's a good question. Go back and read the story. Read Jonah's response to God telling him that he was going to judge the people of Nineveh. What is Jonah's response to God? Jonah, not Noah, nothing to do with Noah. Jonah says to God, I know who. I just know what you're like. I know you. And I know you're absolutely right when you say you're going to judge Nineveh. But I know that if they repent, you're a God of mercy. Because you've revealed that too. And you will forgive them. And I don't like that. So Jonah said to God, You see, God had laid down in Scripture. Yeah, I will judge. I will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom I've ordained. But is He going to judge you today? You're a believer. You trust in the Lord. Your sins are forgiven. Because He he revealed that about Himself as well. He brings judgment and He shows mercy. That's built into the uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In uh, Revelation chapter five, we find that God's decrees are opened in the book that's opened there. And as soon as those decrees are become evident, then they become they materialize in the physical world. Uh, one of the reformed preachers called bless him, Wolebius, Wolebius, Wally for short, uh, said this, the will of God and God himself are the same thing. The will of God and God himself are the same thing. And there is nothing in God that is not God himself. Another Reformed scholar, Heidegger, not the 19th, 20th century Heidegger, but an earlier 117th century. He says this, the decree of God is the act of God by which from eternity, according to his utterly free will, he has by an unchangeable counsel and purpose specified and resolved on the things that were to come into being out with himself in time, together with their causes, their operations and circumstances and the manner in which they are bound to be made to exist, and all to his glory. All to his glory. So you say, what about evil in the world? God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Isn't evil and sin included in that expansive claim? Yet the Bible is clear that God is not the author of sin. It is true that what happens against his will, that is sin, does not happen without his will. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans are all heinous sins. And yet even these serve the sovereign purpose of God for your salvation. You listen to what Jesus says about Judas in Luke 22. Truly the Son of Man goes as was determined. But woe to that man by whom he was betrayed. In other words, God didn't make Judas do that. Judas decided to do that all by his own will. We choose to sin. God made people with free will, with choices, We choose to sin. God made us. He didn't make us to sin, but He gave us a will by which we choose to sin. And because it's permitted by God, because man is a free will and will therefore choose sin nonetheless, the presence of evil does not thwart the purpose of God. Now we need to rush up. Hurry up here. Prior to the creation of the world then, There was only eternity. And in that eternity, matter, bodies, forms of life, and everything else we can imagine did not exist. God who inhabits eternity, purposed to create a universe, create time, populated with creatures, maintain and govern them, Determining, stipulating the place, activity, course of events transpiring during the existence of every creature. Think of that. Think of the smallest creature you can imagine. Think of that fly that got in on one of the warm days and is still buzzing around your house. Think of the ant. Every creature has its history, its existence, everything that will happen to it, every, everything it will find to eat, by which to sustain its life, ordained, ordained by God, and provided by God. It's God that we serve, you see, is far bigger than we imagine. Our imaginations don't reach to that. So we read that for God, there is no design external to Him or imposed on Him on which He might pattern what He wanted to make. He is so free that things exist simply as the expression of His will and counsel. This is what we read in Acts chapter 15. Known to God, are all his works from the beginning of the world, known to God. So the decree then is rooted in God's wisdom, his own will and good pleasure, rooted in God's freedom. God is most free. He is determined and restrained by nothing but his own reasons. The decree embraces and ordains all future things that will happen. Out of all of the possibilities of things that may happen, this decree is one and is most simple to God, for it determines the things that on our side of the time-space link, the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. And God ordains the end before He ordains the means to that end. What is your end going to be? Now, I'm using the word end in the biblical way of that which is uh, the purpose, the reason, the goal, the destiny of each one of you. God's ordained for each one of you as the children of God is that you become a creature of such magnificent glory that if you were to see yourself as you will be glorified, you would imagine that you were in the presence of a God. C.S. Lewis says something similar to that in one of his books. We are going to be like the resurrected, transfigured, glorified, and exalted Lord Jesus Himself. We will be like Him. And we will be able to see God, the very essence of God, trans- the beatific vision. God's destined you to be there. He's also destined what it's going to take for you to be prepared for that all over the whole course of your life, the whole course of your life, towards that end. But he ordained the end first of you being with him. In fact, to God, we're all there now. Every one of us who are going to be Christians throughout all of time are already to God present. Saved, washed, sanctified, glorified, beautified. While here in time we wait for the day of resurrection, to God the whole thing is a done deal. Because he's eternal. So God then is... uh, We've looked into the extrinsic things that he makes outside of himself, the intrinsic decision, the counsel of his own will. And then just lastly, very briefly, God's doings and God's decrees are salvific. That is, they're saving. They're about salvation. Because God chose not only to create, but to save and this work of salvation is the one work of the one God in His Trinitarian glory, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who with their one divine will conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation. Herman Bavinck puts it like this. The benefit to the believer is in knowing that the covenant of grace executed and revealed in time and history nevertheless rests upon an eternal, unchanging foundation. That is the counsel of the triune God himself. And that counsel is like a a mystery. This word mystery is coming up in this passage. We'll look at it more thoroughly in another occasion, but he talks here about the mystery of God, the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul calls it the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. He summarizes that mystery in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3. What is it? The Christmas story, God manifest in the flesh. The Easter story justified in the spirit as he's raised from the dead. Seen of angels around the tomb, preached to the Gentiles, still going on, believed on in the world, still going on. Jesus received up into glory, and our being received into glory with him. All of this, says Peter, in 1 Peter 1, was ordained before the foundation of the world, and has been manifested in these last times. Well, I'm going to wind up with some practical applications that are brief. And they come from Petrus van Maastricht. The divine decree commends the majesty of God's reign and sovereignty. God's rule extends throughout time, in all places, to each and every future thing that's going to happen. Not because he foresees it, but because he ordains it. ordains it. Secondly, the divine decree warns us not to abuse it. Don't think that, oh, well, it's going to happen. Therefore, I I don't need to do anything. I don't need to pray about things because they're going to happen. I don't need to work at things because it's all going to happen. That makes us indolent, neglectful of present duties. Thirdly, the Divine creed is useful to us. It's useful because, I hope it does this for us this morning, it should engender reverence for this God. It should lead those of you who aren't Christians to be converted to this God. It should teach all of us to run from sin because judgment's coming. And it fortifies us. The decree of God should teach us to be patient and not panic. We're all tempted to panic. The things that happen in the world and things that happen in the church, aren't we? We, we have a spirit of panic that sets in. Well, the decrees of God should eliminate that. God's ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and The second part is the best part. Enjoy Him forever. It's useful to us because it also feeds our confidence and peace on the issue of salvation. Look at the bother that God has gone to for you. The bother of election, redemption, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of that. Rests on the eternal, most wise, immutable decree of God. And because God has decreed things, the liturgy of the church, the liturgy of Israel and the church, the way we worship God, is not something we can make up for ourselves, by ourselves, when we like it, inserting into it what our tastes may or may not be as we go along. No, it's been delivered to us by the Holy Scriptures. It has been passed on through the church over the generations. And we are to observe it. I made a little change to the liturgical layout of the church here. Do you notice? The Lord's table should always be where the Lord's table is. Adjacent to the Word of God. And it's not meant to be a book stall. It's to be a reminder to us that this is where Jesus comes and meets with us in the supper. His presence is always with us. And I add, I'll get into trouble and choose a night at session for this. I add that in the Reformed liturgies, there should be a one solitary candle that stands on this every Sunday. You can look it up for yourselves. And represented, by the way, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. The candlestick represents the church which is being supervised by the Lord Jesus himself. That's the reason for the candle. And that's a reformed issue, not anything else. Anyway, uh, that will go nowhere. Uh, so those are, the, those are the main points. Now let me just finish by going back to the very, very beginning. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus attributed to himself the status of a god gave himself divine titles made people bow to him take a pinch of incense and offer it to him as a divine godlike figure and here he makes this decree like a god that will influence all these populations of people and get all the whole of the roman empire going and moving and people going with it so that he can get their taxes. But all his decree did at the end of the day was to ensure that within 300 years his kingdom would be unrecognizable. The Roman Empire would no longer be the empire of Augustus. The Roman Empire would, was going to be converted to Christianity. He struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And far away in little Bethlehem of Judea is born the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. You can say Amen. That's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great and wonderful things. Maybe heavy to process, but nonetheless practical in their application to us. We're not victims of chance. We're not cast out onto the waves, as it were, to be tossed and turned. Uh, by every wind of doctrine, rather, we build on that solid rock. And we thank you for the pactum salutis. We thank you that uh, the, the business of our salvation was already decided in that decree before ever you even made the universe. We thank you for that, that you've loved us longer than the universe has existed. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.